Hello everyone, this is Shweb Khan here at Anti-Small Talk and today in our collaboration with Teacher Hug Radio we have the wonderful Hannah and Kath who have their own podcast which is Non-Contact Time joining us as guests. Hello Hannah, hello Kath and welcome to Anti-Small Talk. Hi, thanks for having us. No, I was on your, your podcast not too long ago as well, Non-Contact Time. To my listeners, if you listen to this as well, this is a fantastic podcast. They talk about all sorts of things, a great range of topics, particularly relating to education. So yeah, if you're listening, Non-Contact Time. So Hannah and Kath, I'll start with Hannah. Why did you choose to become a teacher? So, well, originally it was because I really enjoyed music and it was something I really loved. But at college, um, I wasn't able to take it. So it kind of died a little bit of a death for me because I wasn't able to take it at A-level. There wasn't capacity in my school. So I just kind of got put off and I thought, well, I don't know what else I'm gonna do. So I went to university, did music at university, didn't really think it was all that. Uh, I didn't enjoy it as much as I did when I was at school. So I went into advertising and marketing and uh, hated it. <laughs> so I thought, well, I might as well have a look into teaching and see kind of what it's got to offer because it can't be as bad as this and I absolutely loved it and I've not looked back since so yeah that's my shortened version. <laughs> that's really, that's really, I also love how you've retained that love for your subject so Kath have you got a similar sort of story or something that can top that because I know you guys <laughs> are in competition aren't you? <laughs> well <laughs> I think um, I went into teaching for the wrong reasons in the beginning because I just really wanted to travel and that was a big thing for me at school and it was my art teacher that said to me well do you know if you have a teaching degree you can go anywhere you can teach anywhere and I thought oh that sounds all right I could do that I get to do art which I love and then I get to do teaching so I guess when I first started teaching it was just more so that I could do other things and the more I've done it over time the more I realized this is something I really love doing and um particularly I'm again really lucky like Hannah I've got a subject that I'm really really passionate about and that I really love and I actually had a choice between music and art so um, I uh, went to art college because I had to be older to apply to do music I was going to do musical theatre and um, when I was doing art I was like no this is it I want out of musical theatre I want to art's the thing I want to do now um, so it all kind of happened by accident, but it happens to be a very, very happy accident. That's really cool to know that. <laughs> I won't lie to you, okay, I haven't got much musical skill. Um, I used to get sent out of nearly every single music lesson and singing lesson and, and performing arts lesson, okay, but Life of Khan needs to become in production. I think you guys are going to definitely be part of that at some stage. So yeah, Khan coming to the cinemas 2025 or something like that. And, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, each year I think it's I think I'm gonna do like a BBC series if BBC let me in. I'm not sure if they will, but you know. Uh, I love that. Okay, fabulous. Okay, so guys, okay. So second question for you: One teacher that inspired you at school was there one particular teacher who you look back and say, yeah, that person was the person at school. And I was a middle of the road kid who kind of got ignored quite a lot. So any teacher that gave me. Uh, specialist attention and saw my potential or what I you know imagined to be my potential was immediately my <laughs> my favorite teacher so there wasn't many of them to be honest and I think that's why being a teacher you I look out for those middle of the road kids because the, they're the ones that desperately need that encouragement and support so my music teacher 
he was a uh, he was the first person at parents even everyone else was like oh yeah she's just really quiet or she's really good or she does her work but he was the first person to tell my mum that I had some kind of potential and that music was the subject that I should be going for in the future and I think that's probably shaped my opinion of of not just education but music in general because as soon as that was mentioned to me I think that was about I think he started when I was in year eight and that was at the point where I thought actually this is something I'm quite good at that teachers out there do have that connection with people because it does it, it changes the life for it, you know for me for the better because I'm in a job that I love um, and it, I do think it's really important to have that relationship with children and to, to build them up like that that's absolutely wonderful story and you're right and we keep talking about relationships and it gets repeated uh, over and over again to the point where it becomes kind of white noise but relationship with students is so important building those rapports that trust with them so Kath is there a particular teacher that inspired you to be the person that you are today do you know on our podcast we actually talked about these um a few months ago and um just recently I was thinking of one of my teachers and um she was my form tutor and I think she was my form tutor for two or three years in school. And um, I didn't mention her on our podcast, but Mrs. Gayen, hi, um, she's um, amazing. And she really um, looked after her students so much so that when we left, left school, we've obviously sought her out and become her friend and like want to find out what's happening with her life as well. Um, but I, it, she was just someone that popped up the other day because she was liking something that I was liking and she's still a role model to me. Um, but I think I forgot her in my list because I have a list of like a huge list of amazing teachers that have inspired me for lots of different reasons. But equally, I have a teacher that I'm not going to mention the name of, but who told me that I was stupid and that I wasn't worth her time and that she wouldn't, she actually refused to teach me. And I used to sit outside the classroom and I only passed her subject because my friends would get kicked out with me and we used to sit outside and study together. And even those experiences help you and shape you as a teacher, I think, because there's so many times that I think I don't ever want to be like that teacher. I never want someone one day to talk about me the way I talk about that teacher back then. No, that's absolutely incredible. I can resonate with you on many levels about being sent out of classrooms. I wasn't a troublemaker. Uh, I wasn't a troublemaker. I just had a big mouth. And uh, whenever oh, yeah. something was wrong, I would make it obvious that it was wrong and I'd make my feelings very clear. I'm not that sort of person anymore, you know. I don't think I am anymore as, as much as I used to be. But I remember sending, I remember being sent out of my history lesson all of year eight, all of year nine for deliberately annoying the teacher because whenever her subject knowledge wasn't there on point. I need to drop in there and say something to annoy her. But I don't want to be that teacher. I don't want to be that authoritarian no. figure who scares kids, that Trunchbull-esque person. That's not me. That's not who Mr. Khan is. That's not how I want to operate. So, Yeah. Do you know, and it's really, what's really funny about this teacher that used to send me out, I wasn't a bad student. I never did anything intentionally to get thrown out. I actually worked really, really hard and I tried my best and even that wasn't good enough. And I think that's when I, I felt really disillusioned. And I know that we have children that feel like that sometimes. And it's making sure that they never feel like they can't do something. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. And I think, again, it links back to those relationships we have with our students, knowing what works and mm. what doesn't work. And with some children, you can be authoritarian. You can be quite strict. Others, they need a bit more of a holistic approach uh, in how you talk to them. Uh, how you interact with them uh, need a bit more loving, I suppose, some some students more than others. So uh, it does link back to relationships massively, massively, yeah. 
I agree. I think relationships are key to mm. everything that we do because if we can build it, and it's not a relationship like we're mates with them mm. because I think it's really clear the line between teacher and student and um, it's just making them know that someone's on their side really. Of course, and they've got someone there, you know, uh, batting for their team, that sort of thing. You know, I remember working in quite difficult environments where I had particularly large groups of boys who didn't quite understand where my approach, where I was coming from. When you bridge that disconnect between you and them, and you get to see that you get to see their personalities as well as them seeing yours. Okay, so guys, okay, so Kath, I'm going to start with you this time, okay? If we walked into your classroom today, myself and Hannah, what would we typically see? What is your, what is your teaching style? What is it like? Um, I'm pretty casual. I think it's the Australian in me. I think um, I like the students to kind of lead the lesson more than I lead the lesson. And often I'll say to the students, I only really need five minutes at the beginning and five minutes at the end to talk to them. Um, and wherever possible, I want them working independently and chatting. And um, if they're talking and working, then we're, everything's great. Um, cause I really like that. I like that kind of productive noise in the classroom because I, I can't work in silence. I find working in silence really weird. I don't know about anyone else. Well, definitely not you, Hannah, because you always have noise in your classroom to people play instruments. Um, but yeah, I, um, I would expect some noise. It's very casual. Students know the expectations though. So even though it's a bit more, you know, this is what we're doing let's get on with it. It's often really progressive and like, mm. so the work they're doing is continual rather than discrete. So often the kids will come in and kind of set themselves up and kind of know what they're doing and what they, where they're going next. Mm. Um, yeah. So I, I suppose you're kind of like describing it's messy. yourself. Yeah. I suppose <laughs> you kind of describe yourself as more as a facilitator rather than a, yeah. I think that's the best way in my approach. My approach is very casual as well. Very casual. Definitely a facilitator rather than an authoritarian. Um, yeah, it's more workshop based. And I think that's because I tried to, I thought about the way that I learned at school and particularly my art lessons. My amazing art teacher used to just make it like a studio space. And we can't always do that for the younger years, but I try to do that for the older years, that it's more, this is your space and you're going to use it how you want. I'm going to guide your learning and show you where you should be up to and maybe some examples and kind of push you in different ways. But really, they should be taking the lead with their learning. I like that. That's really cool. Okay. Typically seeing your lesson, if we walked into Hannah Kirkman's class, what do we see? I agree with Kath. I think if you do an art subject, it's more of the students demonstrating their own knowledge and skills, then you can model it for them and show them how to do it and give them some tips and things and point them in the right direction. But ultimately, the students have to do the hard work. So I mm. was... Uh, observed once by Ofsted and the Ofsted inspector said to me um normally when I go into a music lesson I'll see a really creative teacher who's clearly got you know lots of musical knowledge and they are very positive and they've got a great kind of presence in the classroom but the the music because it, it, the nature of it is quite creative it's not very structured so the students don't get enough stuff done other times we go into lessons and we see a very structured music lesson, but it takes all the fun out of it. And he said that I was a nice mixture of creative, but also structured. And I like that. It makes me sound a little bit like Monica from Friends, but... <laughs> Monica's cool. <laughs> yeah, Monica is cool. Yeah, I give her that, yeah. Structured fun is fun. <laughs> I do like that. 
Mm. That's really, really cool. I think you're right. I, I teach sociology and RE. And it, again, it's very similar where I will do beginning of the lesson, you know, starter or do now, whatever we call it. And the rest of it, my expectation is students get on and I can facilitate their learning. I am not teaching from the board, from the front all the time. It's not a lecture. Sixth form is very different. Sixth form is a bit more lecture based. We've got a lot more you know, content to go through. But lower school and key stage four, I think it's an opportunity to be creative. And we lose that opportunity to be creative with a sort of straitjacket approach to our curriculum. We lose so many of our fabulous teachers. Absolutely. And the exams kind of push them into one direction. And if you're not um, able to perform well in exams, then you mistake that for not loving the subject. And that's where we need to get rid of that because children will love the subject if we are able to be creative with it and make it fun and interesting for them. And I think we should just try and avoid taking all of that out, especially in key stage three, when they don't have any structured exams in most subjects anyway. That is a golden um, opportunity. Key stage three is a golden opportunity. It's the, missed, it's the golden years. They're missed out. They are neglected by many schools. I think if you get the key stage three correct, the key stage four and five, uh, they'll, they'll be doing really well. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so true. And then, like, by the time they get to key stage four, if you've got the structured fun, like Hannah and I, I think Hannah and I are very similar in our approaches often. And um, the best moments you have is when you get to key stage four and you hear the students talking like you and they're talking to each other and they're teaching one another and they're going, well, I think you're fine to come up with your next ID. You probably need to do a bit more visual research. And I'm just sitting there going, yep, excellent. That's exactly what I would have said. And if they can do that, then you know you've done your job well. No, of course, of course. And I think when you're imparting knowledge, you're also imparting skills. And what Hannah mentioned there about the whole, whole idea of exams, I think the current exam system has been exposed badly, you know, in, during the pandemic. This is Shweb Khan here with Hannah and Kath, who are at non-contact time. This is end of part one. Welcome back. This is part two of Anti-Small Talk slash Teacher Hug Radio. We've got the wonderful Hannah and Kath at Non-Contact Time talking to us about all things creative subjects. So, Hannah, again, you to start with. Creative subjects, how are they assessed compared to other subjects? I teach RE and sociology. It's a bit more formulaic. What's it like in, you know, music or in art, Kath? In music, we've got a nice balance of coursework and an exam. And there are students who do really well in the theory side and they're brilliant at the exam. There are students who do really well in the practical side and they, they're either good composers or they're good performers. And I do like that there's three elements to that, but then obviously you're gonna get students inevitably who might be really good at performing but not composing or really good at the theory. And I think the way that the exam system has worked for so many years is it's one size fits all. And I don't know how we do it, I don't know whether it would be possible, but to have a differentiated approach and have that, you know, that ability to choose what you would like to specialise in, like you do at university, you choose your specialist and then you work, you work along that. Um, I think that would be a much better approach for students, but I don't know whether that would be possible. 
mm. or even just having different test instruments because it seems like the UK government think that the only way to check progress seems to be an exam. But there's so many other ways that you can see how someone knows something. You could get someone to have a conversation. You could get someone to do a presentation. You could get them to do a portfolio of work. You could get them. There's so many ways of testing mm. students and demonstrating knowledge and showing what they know but just remembering things and writing it down on an exam paper is one <laughs> the problem with that is that the government don't trust teachers enough to um no. to mark that kind of stuff which is frustrating because you go into the profession hold hold yourself to you know high expectations of, of professionalism and then you're told by government that we don't trust you i find that <laughs> appalling <laughs> And that also trickles down into the media, that trickles down into our parents, you know. Uh, the trust of teachers is very, very limited. And Kath is right. There are a plethora of ways we can assess children. And an exam is mm. one of that, many, many, one of many ways. And I keep hearing people saying to me repeatedly, particularly the archives of social media, there's exams are the fairest and most equ equitable way. They might be, but historically we've had groups that have suffered disadvantage as a result of exams, you know, EAL students, you know, our people premium students. So... I don't see how it is the most equitable way to for every single child. There's got to be an alternative. And like you guys have got in, you know, music and art, etc. having 50-50 exam coursework split, you know. So Hannah, I've got a question here for you, okay? Thus far in your career, what has been your biggest challenge? There's too many. <laughs> One in particular think, that stands out. I think for me, because I, um, I believe that every student is capable of doing my subject whether they are I, I don't believe in talented I believe in hard work so yeah. my biggest frustration and my biggest challenge is turning around those students who don't think that music is for them and so they don't make the effort so for many students I'm successful because of the things that I put in place but obviously there are those one or two students that slip through the net every every time and they are my biggest challenge. I want them to do well. I want them to work hard. And yeah, it's very difficult. You're right. And making them feel worthy. I think that's what's what I've got over overturns that. Making them feel those they're worthy of doing your subject or, and it's accessible for them. Absolutely. Because we're being told so much. I mean, I've had GCSE students say this to me in the past and particularly now because of COVID and all the musicians that have been frozen out of all the pay support why would I pick music when musicians are treated so poorly in society? Financially, they're not being supported at the moment. Um, the, you know, it's not just music, it's art in general. There's a lot of areas of art that are not being supported by the government. But then that also trickles down into funding for the arts in schools. So you, you might go into a school that's got, you know, an average size school and you've got seven, eight, nine, ten maths teachers and you'll have one music teacher who teaches everybody in the whole school on a rotation. And I think if the funding is there, the school surely would be employing more, more music teachers or more art teachers or whatever, so that there's enough to go around. But the way that the government has meant um, funding and, you know, and the support for those types of subjects occurs is that schools have got to choose. Do we choose to employ another music teacher? in a subject that's a bucket three subject and it's not very heavily weighted or do we pay the heating bill and sometimes I find that students do cotton onto that even if they can't articulate it or grasp it or or say it explicitly 
they can feel it and it does have an impact on results it has an impact on attainment and it has an impact on uptake for my subject and i'm sure across the country lots of teachers of those types of marginalized subjects will feel it particularly after eback happened so mine's a bit of a loaded <laughs> mm. uh, one in there hannah <laughs> yeah i think that's i think that that does contribute a lot to the the attention span of students in the lesson so ultimately why would they want to pick music if there's no potential for them in the future and they're being told that on a regular basis by government sometimes by parents and sometimes by other teachers fighting for for them on the option on the option sheet yeah. no you're right and the way it's packaged as well by schools you know the way it's advertised it's an easy subject or we know from our subjects and how we teach them as well there's so much to empower students the power of the subject itself the sort of skills that we impart and not only that they allow students to break away from the rigid exam approach sometimes it allows them a bit of a break from you know doing five or four lessons of assessments every single day. and those our subjects are considered as you know lower in the lower category or status as teachers is lo- lowered as well that annoys me, non-academic, because you point at a teacher that can read Latin, that can read music notation, rhythmic notation, understands music theory, but then can apply that and play it, or auditory, identif- you know, identify pieces of music and the, you know, the different conventions in that. It is such an academic subject, but because it's just banging around on a drum or playing a piano and they think that it's not very difficult. Actually, it is very difficult. And I think sometimes that's why students don't pick it because it is quite challenging. And they don't feel sometimes that they're able to because they they might only have one hour a week. You can't get good at something in one hour a week. Mm. You have to be practicing that skill over many, many, many hours. And yeah. It, that does it grinds my gears <laughs> I can imagine I can imagine yeah those of you listening Hannah is quite annoyed actually you can see in her face some of you guys can't see it. <laughs> I totally understand I've teach sociology as an option at GCSE and A level and whenever the options booklet come out we're right at the back and I'm sat there thinking no I spent hours planning all these lessons and you've just relegated me in my subject and I get an uptake of like six or seven students and you're fighting with you know other really amazing subjects like music like art and you have to try and balance that between supporting those subjects as well as promoting your own. It's uh, it is horrible. The fact that, you know, we've got hierarchies of subject subjects, haven't we? Yeah. And also for sociology, do you teach it at key stage three as well? No, it starts at key stage four immediately. So they do life skills at key stage three, which kind of feeds into it. My aim is to start it in year nine, but um, that's not been given the go ahead yet. I don't think it will be. That's quite difficult as well because you know it's particularly obvious in subjects that are non-curriculum subjects. I only know from experience of drama. Drama teachers sometimes only start teaching at year 10 so they're teaching you know I'm quite lucky in the fact that I might teach some students once a fortnight but I've got them from year 7 all the way up to year 11 if they stay with me but you know some teachers like yourself you might never have that student until year 10 and then all of a sudden you've got to teach them a GCSE and I know we're not supposed to do GCSEs in two years, uh, sorry, in more than two years, but you need to embed those skills lower down the school in order for those children to be as successful as possible in that subject. And it links back to what we said about key stage three being lost years. If they're not used properly, you know, we, I've, I've picked up classes in the beginning of year 10 and thought, damn, you guys can't analyze sources. You guys can't, 
structure sentences together. Your, li- your literacy is appalling. And that's a result and a consequence of perhaps even the negligence lower down the school and the lack of skills awareness and skill development that we offer lower down the school. Mainly because they're, they're being aimed towards standardised tests and they've only got to learn one sort of a thing. <laughs> anyway, so uh, Kath, oh, same question to you. The most challenging thing you've had to encounter in your career thus far? I think I have um, th- something similar to Hannah in that we're always trying to prove our worthiness in our subject and trying to prove our place. So it does feel like a big part of my job is being defensive. And um, I was accused of being hostile recently. And I said, well, I I have to defend myself constantly um, because where the the art subjects are always the subjects that are cut first, but they're also the ones that schools go to when they want to showcase. So when they want to show off their school and go, look how great our school is, they'll go to the art subjects and go play us some music, do a concert, make us this artwork, do an exhibition, make some a Christmas card, make us something that's going to be sent to, you know, the local MP. And they'll ask us to do all those things, but all of those things are outside of our time and they're not in our directed time. And I feel like schools are just asking for more and more for less and less Um, And at the moment, I'm finding trying to balance those two things is really, really difficult. My workload at the moment is the biggest workload I've ever had. And I'm just a curriculum leader. I'm just a department head. Whereas um, a couple of years ago, I was um, working towards SLT and I was working with the SLT team. And you would have thought that back then my job was much more stressful, but actually it is now. And all I am is a middle leader. And the work that I'm doing is repetitive and it's not challenging mentally. And it does, I don't feel like it's making me a better teacher. It just feels like there's more and more busy work and there's more and more bureaucracy. And we have to like wade through all, wade through all the bureaucracy in order for us to get really simple things like, money for our subject or an extra teacher in our department or you know it just time just time that's my big challenge at the moment is I'm really really fighting for time I don't have much and um, (laughs) it's starting to kind of seep into my work-life balance and yeah it's it's one of those things because I feel I'm being so defensive all the time Um, I feel like I have to do my job at such a higher level than everyone else just to be able to kind of justify my position in the school, always constantly proving our worth. And I feel like art subjects have to do it so much more than any other teachers. So um, I think that's really, it's taking, it takes an emotional toll as well as a physical toll, as well as an intellectual toll on us at the moment no you're absolutely correct I've, I've worked in schools previously where you're vulnerable you're left very vulnerable yeah, yeah they can replace me they can find someone else and but nuts and bolts is we have to pay our bills that's absolutely. the start of it and then the second part of it is that we're passionate people and we want to do the best for our students so there's like these two really stressful factors <laughs> that we're defending and yeah I've been in the same situation as well. I didn't realise how universal it is actually for the option subjects. Now it's really open my eyes. Yeah. You could be, you know, you could be out of, out of work depending on one bad year of results, which is, is unfair. It's totally unfair. It's not context driven. I think it's really unfair to schools because I think 
they, a lot of schools are so underfunded that they're starting to make really, really hard decisions. And um, I just don't want the hard decision that they cut my subject. Yeah, that's happened in other schools. I've heard from a music perspective that music's totally been cut from some academies because either they, they use the, the mantra that they can't find a good enough head of music, but actually the reason behind it could be that they haven't got enough funding to, they might employ an NQT and then there's no support for that NQT because don't forget if you're a poor maths teacher, you're in a department with five other people who can coach you. If you're a poor music teacher, where are you going to get that support from? And the only way that you can get it is by reaching out to people you don't know on the internet, which is a very daunting prospect for a lot of new teachers. And that's quite a difficult thing to do. No, I totally agree with you. We've just got a couple of messages from our sponsors and we're back to, to carry on this wonderful conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to part three of our conversation with Hannah and Kath, who are at Non-Contact Time. We're talking about all things leadership and how leaders can support teachers who are teaching the more creative subjects. So, Hannah, how can school leaders support these teachers and also these subjects? So there are things that I think should be considered and leadership teams should consider for subjects that have got less staff in them to kind of support them in that way because what you know ultimately what's going to happen if you support your staff you're going to have excellent you know really really good curriculum leaders and subject teachers that then are going to get great results for you so you know ultimately that's the goal isn't it to have great results to have the students love your subject and I think if more leadership teams were on board with that I think subjects like ours would thrive even more and I think that's what needs to happen. And even, Hannah, if we put a spin on that, maybe even more subject, you know, or heads of school have taught our subjects, the creative subjects. It's the more arts, humanities-based subjects that we don't tend to have heads of year or, you know, deputy head teachers taking, teaching those subjects. So they don't have a, a pedagogical understanding of what we're doing day to day. They are approaching it from very much a maths English science point of view. Absolutely. That's, so true. that's when you get workload issues because... You know, in the past, I've been told things like, well, you've not included enough reading in that lesson. And I'm thinking, but the, the language of that lesson should be music. And I should be spending the majority of that lesson performing, composing or listening. So actually reading something should not form the majority of that lesson in order, you know, according to the way that music should be taught. So I think an understanding of those subjects, like you said, if you've got senior leadership teams that have taught those practical subjects, it makes it much easier to get your point across. And you, you do feel like you're not necessarily fighting for your subject mm. uh, because somebody does understand you. And it also feels like sometimes when they're writing these policies for our schools, well, it, it often feels like it favors the core because it has to, to a certain degree. But I just feel like that someone needs to step into our shoes and go, what is this going to look like for art? What's it going to look like for PE? What's this going to look like for music? And just having a blanket policy 
that doesn't actually suit those practical subjects isn't really viable. Um, Because I think that's when often our workloads get much bigger, much greater. So we have to do something that follows the policy and you do it to tick a box. But then you've got to do the thing that actually covers your subject content and covers what's best for your students and covers the exam board requirements. And sometimes those two are so conflicting. Mm. Um, So unless we've got leadership teams that are starting to think about what the policy looks like when it's lived, it's just always going to be an extra to our workload. Of course. I remember having a conversation as a very new teacher with a member of staff who had created a marking policy and the marking policy was to mark every piece of work once a week. And I said to this teacher who was an English teacher, you teach one class five times a week. I teach one class once a week. So I teach 20 classes and you teach three. So you want me to mark every class, every class every week. And the teacher, the, the senior leadership um, member said, yeah, that's what we want. And I said, but I physically, I physically can't. If it takes me an hour to mark a set of books, that's 20 hours a week just marking. What, you know, what are we going to get out of this? Mm. And the, the response was, well, you need to make it work for your subject. And I think that's where the issue lies because when you raise a genuine concern, you need somebody on the other, on the other end to understand. And if they don't, then it becomes an issue, doesn't it? Of course, absolutely. Yeah. Taught the same class three times a week and I've been told, you know, they need to do an assessment, they need to do an exam question at the end of every lesson. That's three different sets of exam questions which also need to be reflected on, you know, purple pen and whatnot you're burnt out. You can't physically do it. And having that understanding, you know, within leadership comes from them actually having to a wide range of subjects, not just coming from one background and adapting marking policies and admin policies to individual, differentiating for individual departments. That's what we should be doing really. Absolutely. We do it for children. So we should be doing it for, to, to ensure that we get the best out of our subjects as well. I remember when I first started teaching in 2015, they were saying things like every page needs acknowledgement. Does that mean every child will acknowledge every single page when you go when they go back over it? And you have no. draconian policies where you have to use a highlighter for this or for capital letters and a green pen for commas. And you're left there thinking, you know what? This is just this is just nonsense. The children don't benefit, and it puts more strain on us. You've been commissioned to to solve a problem in the school, and your project is to solve this problem. Let's say it's marking. And in order to be successful at your job, you've got to prove that whatever you've created is right. So think for pink and green for growth or whatever it used to be. Um, you've created this, this policy and you've got to prove that it works. So you do prove that it works because you, you make it work. And then it gets rolled out across the country. And, you know, it's such, a, it's such a great idea. And it was such a great idea five years ago. And it's disappeared from most of the schools that I've ever you know, worked with. Thank God. <laughs> And you think yeah. if it works so well, why are we still not doing it? And why have we dropped it? Remember stickers, stickers and verbal feedback. <laughs> remember, I remember those stamps. I think what I find really, um, really kind of pointless about marking is that when we're giving feedback and when we're giving students an opportunity to respond to our feedback, if we're good at our jobs, we've planned it into our curriculum already. So it's already something that's there. And we also then implement it when it's appropriate. But just saying that it has to be done at a certain time or a certain number of times a year doesn't actually show 
that the teacher understands the class that they're teaching. Because if I'm working with a class that's working really fast and they're making really good progress, it means they're responding to everything that I say. So I probably don't need a whole lesson to get them to like make a difference or respond to my feedback. Um, but if they're working really slowly, it might be appropriate to kind of go step by step. We need to look back at this because everyone's struggled with it. And then we're going to look at this because everyone's struggled with it. That shows knowledge of our classes and that's going to be a more individualized approach to marking and feedback rather than just saying, well, everyone has to do this and you must show that you've done it. Why? Mm. It, it, the proof is in the, for me, it's the proofs in the portfolio. They get to the end of the year and they have an ace portfolio and it gets better from start to finish. Then it's worked. Marking has become its own world. Its own... Yeah. I think as well with practical subjects, you can't just... We used to have, um, in a school I've worked in, dirt tasks. So you'd, you'd tell them what they need to do after marking the books and then the next lesson they would be expected to just do it straight away as soon as they get into the classroom so in English you might say you've spelled efficient wrong and they'd have to write out efficient five times with the correct spelling brilliant in music they might have played a, a piano piece wrong and they might have done a specific bar and I can write on a piece of paper you need to play bar 28 accurately and fluently but they can't just come straight into the room and just go straight onto the instruments because it's chaos. Mm. So you need to have some kind of structure for them to be able to do those things. So for me, if I was giving feedback, my preferred method of feedback is to listen to them and straight away tell them what yeah. they did well, tell them where they need to, where they need to go next. Mm. And that works. And I try and see every single child in every single lesson. And that works really well for me because the students, feel like they're getting one-to-one -one support and they're building those relationships and they're more inclined to do it. If I just wrote it down, they can choose to ignore that, but they feel that because I've had that conversation with them, they are more accountable and that works really well for me. Um, but then if you ask me to stick my policy into, or my way of working into a policy, it might not fit very nicely. So, you know, what, what do people want? Do they want students to make progress in the most efficient and effective way for that subject? Or do they want to tick a box? It has to be differentiated, doesn't it? Topic to topic, subject to subject. You know, these whole school marking policies, they need to be reviewed annually. They need to be assessed. Are they effective or are they simply, is it because the school up the road are doing it? We should do it as well. It needs to be individualised. I also think that um, the policies need to take into account the workload of teachers. Mm -hmm. So if there are teachers that only have five classes in a school, as opposed to 20, that's not the, that policy can't work. And I think unless schools are actually thinking about the workload of their staff, then they're not really taking on board the mental health or the work-life balance of their staff members. No, you're absolutely correct. And will well-being's become a popular hashtag. Loads of books have been written about it. Loads of things have been said about it. There's no point having a well-being charter if you know, that really people need time. And time is the most important thing. Give a teacher time, an NQT, a teacher head of department, give them time to really invested in their own personal skills, really developed their own teaching, developed their own ethos of, uh, and style. So Hannah and Kath, okay, last couple of questions for you. Okay, I'm just conscious of time as well for you guys. Two things you love about teaching and two things you hate. I'm going to go really corny and pick that one of them is seeing a student really like flourish and, and progress and find themselves in my subject. Because obviously, 
you know, we do loads of shows and performances and things. And at the very beginning, it's quite nerve wracking. But by the end of it, I mean, thinking back to, we did a show a couple of years ago and there was a student who felt like they were unable to get anywhere in any subject whatsoever. And they became our stage manager. And that kid is the best stage manager I have ever met. He was running around with a clipboard. He had an assistant at his ankles, like, you know, hanging on his every word. And using those skills has meant that that student can then go on and he now knows what he loves. He knows what he wants to do and he's able to then use that experience and put it on his CV and go into that arena. And I think helping students find themselves, even if it's not, you know, not everyone's going to be enamored with music. Not everyone's going to absolutely love it, but even to just see those students enjoy what I'm putting in front of them, that that's why I do my job. The second thing I I love is that I get to play my, you know, my instrument and I get to do my hobby as a job. And so I'm in a band as well. So it's called Das Party. We're only a covers band. You know, all that kind of stuff, it, I just love it. And, the, and I do show the kids some of the stuff that we've done in the past because we did perform at school once. And, you know, it's it's nice for the students to see that I am a musician and I enjoy it because I think that helps them and it, I can relate to their experiences because I'm a really naturally nervous performer. I, I don't like performing on stage, but I do it because at the, I like the feeling at the end when you get off and you feel like you've accomplished something. Um, so I can kind of relate to a lot of the students who say that they're really nervous and they don't like performing in front of people. And I think having a real world perspective on it helps them feel like they're not on their own because everybody feels anxious. Everybody feels nerves and anxiety and things. But to harness it and use it, you know, in a, in a positive way, that's what I want them to feel as well. So that's my two good things. Um, two, two negatives. It's hard, hard work sometimes. And there's a lot to do. And I'll never, never get through my to-do lists. And that annoys me. And I like to get things completed and ticked off. The other thing that irritates me, I think, is... Gavin Williamson? <laughs> people who don't understand how difficult it is to teach and then tell me how easy it is wicked so Kath two things you love two things you hate I think both the two things that I love are very similar it's all to do with the students like interactions with students talking to them the relationships with them I don't I think don't I sometimes don't think we give them enough credit because sometimes students come out with things that I hadn't actually thought of and I learn a lot about the world particularly contemporary culture and what it's like to be them because we have contact with the younger generation and I hope that I'll never be one of those older people that kind of looks down at the younger generation and makes fun of them because they have their own every generation has their unique like troubles and their unique challenges. And I think for the youngsters at the moment, it's social media. And um, similar to Hannah's, my other, the other thing I love is watching a student change. So when you have that kid that like comes in at year seven and they're like, they're a bad man or the bad girl or whatever. And they're always like in your face and then watching them grow and change over time and mature and find their path and really find what they're good at. I think that's the moment where you're like, oh, I love this job. I love seeing that. No, fantastic. We've just got one more ad break and then we'll be back for our final five-minute segment where we talk about music and uh, some pet peeves. 
Welcome back, everyone. So Shweb Khan here at Anti-Small Talk with non-contact time, Catherine and Hannah. So, Catherine, okay, what is your pet peeve in teaching? Um, waste time wasting. And that's time wasting of students. Like, I don't waste students' time. I don't like students wasting my time. But I also don't like bureaucratic nonsense that's a waste of my time. Like, I just don't like time wasting. And <laughs> of any description. Like Dominic Cummings. <laughs> <laughs> we've got very similar sort of pet peeves in teaching haven't we i think the lack the lack of accountability for people who are making decisions about our day-to-day -day lives sort of lack of understanding of our profession is something that's been very prominent during this pandemic there is a real apathy and disconnect between the public and ourselves and i think that's how government pushes through a lot of policy as well because the narrative is that we're all lazy and we get loads of holidays when actually the reality of it when you try and explain it to somebody they just all they see is six weeks you know you could do you could work 50 hours a week for however many weeks that you do but you've got that six weeks and that doesn't make up for it at all and if you've got you know a good a good job that's got a good benefits package you get more than six weeks anyway <laughs> there are very few internal benefits of teaching and people say to me when they go abroad they get things like private health care you know they get discounts etc because um i got an advert for free will yeah, that's what teachers should be applying for right now. Wills. <laughs> I don't have any items, so I've got nothing to give away, you know. Uh, <laughs> I've given everything to education. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it does It does feel like that some days, though, doesn't it? It does feel like we've given everything for our job. I heard mm. somewhere that um, because teachers make more minute-by-minute minute or second-by-second second decisions than brain surgeons that's why you get so tired in the day because every second you're accountable for those students you've got to watch them make sure they're safe and make sure they're making progress and then you've got to react and it's all off the cuff it's not you know pre-scripted or anything and because of that that's why the job is so tiring no honestly hannah and kat has been absolutely fantastic having you on the podcast what is non-contact time Non-Contact Time is a podcast about all things educational. We have three sections. Um, we talk about data, so we talk about things that are happening in the news. We talk about teaching and learning, which is normally when we have amazing guests on like you. you. Um, and then we also have uh, student, sorry, People's Causing Concern, where we share funny stories. Though recently it's been more funny stories about teachers and teaching rather than actual pupils. And then we have uh, any other business because it's run like a meeting, a department meeting that you would have in your non-contact time. And we've also made the episodes so that you can actually listen to them in your non-contact time mm -hmm. because we know CPD budgets are very, very tight and people need free stuff that they can still learn from. So that's kind of why we did it in the first place. Do you know what? That's ingenious. Why do I not think of that? That's really... <laughs> You know, it wasn't, there was a lot of thought into the concept development of our podcast. And then when we came up with it, because we couldn't come up with a name for ages. And then it came, I can't remember, I think we were planning something during a non-contact time. And I went, Hannah, that's it. It's non-contact time. And it's going to be a meeting. And we were like, so pleased with ourselves and so smug. No, <laughs> the only no. thing we did do is the belt at the end. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay no honestly I had, a, I had a blast last time we were there and it's been fantastic catching up with you two guys but i love that i just love the idea of it it's really cool with anti-small talk i just thought i was sat in the staff room someone said to me this sat beside me though 
Shrab, if you could be a biscuit, what type of biscuit would you be? I thought, this guy's small talk. What the hell is that? Anti-small talk. Gotta happen. And put the hashtag to it. So we're getting there. We haven't, we're not hitting like Joe Rogan numbers, but I think we are having conversations that matter. And I get to talk to and engage with wonderful educators like yourselves and, and have a laugh, really. That's what education is really about. We don't get much opportunity to do that. And I get no time when I'm at work. I'm constantly on my feet. I'm running to get resources, doing this, this, and this. Actually talk to fellow educators. This is the best CPD we can have, I think. Absolutely. You get to find out so many different people's opinions and also you get to realise that you're not so different from everybody else. And I think that's really important to recognise that you might feel like it's just you that's feeling this, but actually everybody else feels the same way as you. And this is the way that they're kind of managing it and making themselves, you know, more productive or supporting themselves and other people around them. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But thank you so much for your time, guys. It's been absolutely brilliant. And uh, till next time. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Honestly, aren't we lucky? Aren't we lucky? Aren't we lucky to have you as guests? What an incredible, incredible conversation. This is Shreb Khan here at Anti Small Talk. Hannah and Kath, you can find at Non Contact Time, a fantastic podcast, always willing to collaborate. Two incredible teachers, two incredible educators. If you do want to have your story heard and be part of Anti Small Talk slash Teacher Hug Radio, please get in touch at, at Anti Small Talks on Twitter or www antismalltalk.com. Thank you and have a good day.